A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jettikin. We're just talking about, what if we bought a Nordic track? We could probably get two for like $100. (laughs) What if we bought a Nordic track in 2022? Look, it's retro. People don't want to pay the price for a Peloton. Right. Although Nordic Track now is like a brand that's expensive because they make treadmills and stuff. Oh, they do? Yes. So like if you want the original... I want the OG. That's not, that's not even electronic, I think. Do they even still make Nordic Tracks? I bet you could find one on like uh, Craigslist or something. <laughs> Nordic track. I want the, I don't want the, oh my God, I'm just getting ads for like Peloton, or not Pelotons, but elliptical machines made by Nordic track. No, I want the wooden ski. Holy shit, it's expensive still. Oh, it is? Classic pro skier, $799. I don't have, I'll pay $200. Okay. Well, we'll we'll pick this up on another show, our our fitness equipment show. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So let us start off by thanking our patrons am am i doing this correctly yeah they contributed over at patreon.com slash hollywood crime scene where we put up uh, a ton of bonus content things you can only hear on patreon these people all got to pay a very small amount and get access to everything that we've ever posted there which is a hundred plus things is this a great episode um okay so let's thank casey shannon samantha trisha lavish deborah lena Jennifer, John, Jada, Caitlin, Daniel, Mia, the Cheeky Geek, Chris, Aaron, <laughs> Megan, Jennifer, Zazola, Hannah, Claire, Rebecca, Alicia, Amy, Dana, Alicia, Christina. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I love the name Jada. Jada? Probably because I really like Jada Pinkett Smith. Yes, it's a cool, but it's a it's hot a cool girl. girl. It's a hot girl name. Yeah, is what it is. Uh, okay, okay. Anyway, let's let's start. get into it. Let's get into it. Nordic track. No, this, <laughs> we're doing the history of the Nordic track part one. This is uh, a five part episode. <laughs> gets really into the nitty gritty, the scandals, <laughs> the downfalls, the humiliations. Mm. Okay. And that's just me. <laughs> and that's just Desi's activity on the Nordic track in the mid nineties. Okay. Just kidding. This is actually part one of Bugsy Siegel. Now, my main source for this episode is a book by Michael Schneierson called Bugsy Siegel, The Dark Side of the American Dream. I also read a lot of old newspaper articles. Okay. So, Bugsy Siegel. Bugsy Siegel was actually not born Bugsy. He was born Benjamin Siegel. On February 28th, 1906, to Max and Jenny Siegel. He was the second oldest among his three sisters. The Siegels lived in Manhattan's Lower East Side, which at the time was home to many recent Jewish immigrants who, like the Siegels, lived in poverty. Like most Jews who had immigrated to America from Eastern Europe, Max and Jenny Siegel had fled their home of, I don't know how to pronounce this, Galatia, which was, it's not, it, that's what it used to be called. It was basically a region between modern day Poland and Ukraine. Okay. That's like officially 
the yeah. region they were from. Some people just say he's of Ukrainian descent. Regardless, a lot Eastern European Jew. Yeah. They were escaping religious persecution, which was like most of the Jewish immigrants coming in at this time, Max found work in a pants factory, which earned him a very small salary. At the time Max and Jenny first moved into their small apartment, it had no indoor plumbing. After they married in 1903, they had their first child, and then in 1905, they had a girl named Esther. Benjamin was born the following year in 1906. Living conditions were grim for the Siegel family, and it wasn't just them living in their tiny three-room apartment. They also had boarders who lived with them oh my God. to save on rent. This was not an uncommon practice mm-hmm. for the time and place. I think my family members had boarders who yeah. lived with them. The neighborhood's Jewish immigrants brought with them their customs and traditions from the old country. Like the Siegels, many spoke Yiddish in the home and attended the local synagogues. Max and Jenny Siegel were Orthodox Jews, and they attended the Bialystoker Synagogue. Nice. But unlike his parents, Benjamin Siegel did not want to be a nice Jewish boy. Ooh. He wanted to be a bad Jewish boy. Come to me, Papa. <laughs> Desi's, this is your ultimate guy. Totally. He had bigger, more exciting ambitions. He rebelled against his parents' way of life, making an honest, which was making an honest living. He didn't want to live in these squalid conditions. Right. He's like, well, my dad makes an honest living at the pants factory, and what has it got him? Yeah. This is fucking bullshit. Yeah. He also hated his foreign Jewish middle name, which was Hyman. Oh. Uh, he knew what that meant in English. He's like, you can't just give me Hyman for a middle name. That's in a pussy. That's in a pussy. (laughs) I don't want people to think I'm a virgin. Yeah. I I got a Hyman for a middle name. you don't have to tell anyone your middle name. You don't. (laughs) But that was a sore spot for him. Oh, totally. I think Benjamin wanted to assimilate as much as possible. That's typical too, I think. It's very typical. Yeah. but Hyman, it's, it's that's not, also his masculinity is in question. It's also not an <laughs> uncommon Jewish name. I'm pretty sure there's a Hyman somewhere in my family tree. Oh, it's totally. It's not uncommon. It's especially old school. Old, like Jaime too is like the Hyme. nickname. Yeah. Yeah. It's not uncommon, but he fucking hated it. God forbid you made fun of that name too, because he would just kick your ass. Yeah. Ben Siegel had a temper. From a young young age, he was attracted to a life of crime, learning that he could squeeze money from street peddlers by threatening them to pay him for protection. Nice. Classic move. And he's doing this at like 11 years old. Wow. It's like, I will fucking kill your horse. If you don't give me 25, if you don't give give me a coin. (laughs) If you don't, yeah, whatever they were uh, paying back then, a nickel, which was like $500 in 19... Don't add us. Please. (laughs) (laughs) He was enamored with his neighborhood street gangs, and he wanted that life for himself. A quote from Michael Schneerson's book said, quote, The gang was romance, adventure, and had the zest of banditry, the thrill of camp life, and the lure of hero worship. Siegel had what it took to be a gang leader in that he was fearless with an absolute disregard for authority. His own parents were even afraid of him. (gasps) Benjamin had a temper, and he wasn't afraid to fight. In fact, he liked fighting. Around this time, Siegel committed his first big boy crime. He robbed a loan company with three other boys. 
they got away with it too. They ran down the street for several blocks carrying these bags of change. So I don't think they made out with a ton of cash. Right. Like literally they were carrying bags of coins. Which are heavy and not much money. Yeah. But they're like young guys, young boys, and the guys chasing after them were like older men. Yeah. So they ran out of breath and they're like, ah. They're like, ha ha ha, I can't catch us. You little schmucks. Yeah. <laughs> Soon after, Ben met his lifelong friend and literal partner in crime, Meyer Lansky, who we will be doing a separate episode on in the future. Yeah. FYI. Lansky was four years older than 12-year-old Ben Siegel when they first met. Siegel was in the middle of a street fight, and he reached for a gun to shoot the guy, but Lansky saw the gun and intervened, warning Siegel that there were cops nearby. He's like, don't fucking go to jail over this fucking putz. I mean, they they hit on this relationship a bit in Boardwalk Empire. They did. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and these guys were BFFs. Yeah. From the start. Lansky and Siegel had very similar lives and backgrounds, both Jewish boys of Eastern European descent whose families sought a safer, more tolerant life in the States. Lansky was born in Russia, and some of his earliest memories were watching fellow Jews be terrorized and persecuted, and he was like, I don't want that. Yeah. I want to be the fucking tough guy. He immigrated to the U.S. at the age of 10, and like Siegel, was enthralled by New York's underworld. Though he wasn't a physically imposing guy, Lansky was tough, and with a strong guy like Siegel around, they would be a great team. Lansky was a short king. He was like 5'6". Yeah, but scary. But he was scary and tough and definitely scrappy. Look, short guys can be good fighters. I agree. They're like, they can, they're like low to the ground. <laughs> I'm just saying looking. they have like, they can like, do you know what I mean? It's not easy to topple them, Yeah, I think. And Lansky was a scary dude. Yeah. For sure. Super scary. Um, yeah, he was tough. Lansky wanted Ben Siegel to join up with him in forming a gang, which would later become known as the Bugs and Myers mo- Meyer Mob. Siegel's nickname, Bugsy, apparently came from him being called as crazy as a bed bug. He oh. would also be called Bugs. Like, that guy's, like, bugging out, I guess. Yeah. Um, he hated this nickname. Yeah. I mean, well, when you put it that way, it doesn't sound good. No. <laughs> It wasn't some um, affectionate, cute cute nickname that he liked. It was like, he's crazy. Yeah. And you better not call him Bugsy to his face or he'd fucking kill you. What did he want to be called, Ben? Probably just want to be called Benny Siegel. Yeah. Benjamin Siegel. I'm just Probably Benny. Or Ben. Or Ben. Yeah. Ben's a great name. Of course. It's a classic. It's a classic. So at the time of the gang's inceptions... Inception, the neighborhood's Jews had zero protection against the Irish and Italian mobs. The Bugs and Meyer mob assembled a team of streetwise, tough Jews who could fight back against the gangs that had threatened them. In the late 1910s, Siegel and Lansky were both working regular day jobs. Siegel worked at a trucking company. Uh, Lansky worked somewhere else. I didn't write it down. We'll get into that in his episode. Yeah. Don't add us. Don't. <laughs> but they had day jobs. They were continuing with their gang activity, but obviously they hadn't made it anywhere near the big time yet because they still had these day jobs. The big time for Lansky and Siegel wouldn't come until January of 1920 when Prohibition offered gang members across America a chance at making some serious cash. Yeah. I mean, that was like a huge moneymaker. 
yeah, I mean, that's what Boardwalk Empire is about. I mean, a lot of that, I love those, that period with prohibition. I mean, I wouldn't want to live in it, but like, (laughs) even just like the untouchables, like I like that movie a lot. It's interesting because drinking was banned, but everyone was still drinking. Well, it just created this huge black market, kind of like the war on drugs. It's like, it doesn't stop. Right. So prohibition happened and there wasn't just the money that was in bootlegging. There was also the prestige that came with being a bootlegger because all the rich and famous and powerful people were buying the booze. Yes. And then you had these secret clubs too, which just gave it this sort of like cachet. Right. Yeah. Lansky first met 32-year-old crime boss and businessman Arnold Rothstein at a bar mitzvah. Unlike Lansky and Siegel, Rothstein was an upper-crust Manhattan-born Jew from the Upper West Side. He came from money, and he rubbed elbows with the city's elite. He had a very different childhood and sort of life than these two scrappy Eastern European... Lower class. Yeah, yeah, lower class... uh, Jews living in poverty. Rothstein's family was very well-to-do, and he wasn't thrown into a life of crime out of any sort of desperation. Before he got into bootlegging, Rothstein had dealings in a number of areas, including casinos, finance, and working as a fixer for very powerful people. He dressed in stylish and tasteful, expensive clothing. He was definitely known for how he put himself together and how he his appearance, he prided himself on that. Rothstein was also known as the brain for how he revolutionized organized crime to run like a big business. Rothstein also came up with plans to bring his liquor over from England. This was going to be a high-class bootlegging operation Ooh. with the good stuff, yeah. but not like bathtub gin. Yeah. So he could provide this high-class European booze for his wealthy patrons. To implement this plan, he needed a whole team of dudes. He needed drivers, he needed people working on the ships, people who owned warehouses to stock the booze, and he needed guys that would provide security. Rothstein saw something in Lansky, and he would go on to become his bootlegging mentor. Lansky, in turn, recommended his 14-year-old partner, Ben Siegel, to help him with the driving of the liquor to and from the ports and the warehouses. Siegel would become the youngest guy on Rothstein's team. They didn't have any 12-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have any 12-year-olds in newsboy caps. Just Ben Siegel. <laughs> Among the other hires were Italians, Lucky Luciano, who wasn't lucky. He wasn't known as lucky by that point. He was still Salvatore Luciana. Uh-huh. Frank Costello, Vito Genovese, Joe Adonis, and Albert Anastasia. The Jewish gangsters in Rothstein's employ were Dutch Schultz, Waxy Gordon, Longies Wilman, and Louis Lepka Buchalter. Oh, and also Jacob Garaz Shapiro. So now, at this time, the Jewish gangsters are working with the Italian gangsters. Mm. After a year of successful international bootlegging, Rothstein withdrew from the operation after one of the captains aboard a ship ratted him out. But Siegel and Lansky continued with their own freelance bootlegging operation. They imported booze from their own illegal Canadian stills and would transport it over the Great Lakes. Not only were they doing their own bootlegging, they also acted as hired guns for people who needed protection for their own bootlegging runs. 
By this time, the Bugs and Meyer mob were known and feared, and Siegel was the type to shoot first and ask questions later. <laughs> and he's still a teenager. Yeah, but I mean, he's, he's a kid. But he's crazy, Desi. Yeah. Like he's he will, bugging out. <laughs> he will blow your fucking head off Ugh. and be like, who was that guy? Yeah. Oh, shit. It's just a delivery boy. <laughs> Ma. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know. (laughs) Having a guy like Ben Siegel protecting your truck full of liquor was useful when these trucks were very prone to being ambushed and robbed. These are always the best characters in any mob movie or show. Oh, yeah. The ones who fly off the handle, but it's like, it's like, when does this become a liability? Right. That type of character, kind of like Ralphie. Oh, uh, from the Sopranos. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like they're entertaining, but they're like, you're going too far. Or Joe Pesci. In, yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. It's like, they're just like, it's like you need that volatility. Right. But they take it too far. And at some point you're like, they got to go. Right. Like, do you know what I mean? Like they right. just, they cross the line in a way that it's like, you can't go back now. At first it's great. Cause it's like, he'll kill anyone. Yes. No problem. So, but yeah, it's always, it's always going to end badly. A driver for Frank Costello later recalled one night that Siegel protected his truck from a heist. Siegel got out of the truck when he noticed a log was laying in the middle of the road. He's like, oh, someone put this log there. They're going to do an ambush. Yeah. He knew they were about to be robbed. So Siegel gets out. He stood in the middle of the road. He takes his Tommy gun out and he just starts spinning around and firing into the surrounding woods. Oh my God. Like into the night, yeah. firing the gun. Like I'm going to kill who's ever hiding in the bushes. The gunmen who were hiding out in the woods fired back. And then he saw somebody starts charging at him. So Siegel just just fires at the guy, killing him, subsequently scaring the other gunman half to death because they're like, he's not standing down. He's yeah. just waving his Tommy gun around, firing it. That's like the stories with Danny Trejo yeah. that we talked about. <laughs> he's like, just act crazy and everyone's <laughs> scared of you. And I think that's the way it was with Bugsy Siegel. I mean, it is true because you're like, that person doesn't care if they live or die. Right. And I actually care. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, right. So he managed to subdue these, like, it was like four other gunmen who were after him to ambush this truck. These robbers stood by cowering, like, this dude's fucking crazy. He really lived up to his name, Bugsy, but you better not call him that to his face. I'm not. Let's take a. I'm, I'm definitely not. not. But behind his back. That's why I'm referring to him as Ben or Siegel. In this I actually episode. do think Bugsy is a cute nickname, though. I think I it's have to cute, say. too. But I'm, you know what? I don't want his ghost coming and get uh, me. Please. <laughs> please. Okay. We'll take a quick break. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
I've had a really stressful year with work and family stuff, and I know I'm not alone when I say I tend to push that stress down in order to get what I need done, done, and that only makes things worse. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. In the past, therapy has helped me navigate many situations from helping me to set boundaries to just becoming the best version of myself. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I love that it's entirely online, so it's convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash HCS today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash HCS. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money, and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. In Michael Schneerson's book, it notes that the FBI would later speculate whether or not Siegel was a psychopath or a sociopath because of how quick to kill he was. But the book posits that this isn't necessarily true considering he was a man um, who also had these strong relationships with people. Like he had really close friendships. He really loved his daughters and his wife. Right. So maybe he's half a psychopath. He's like a psych- psychopath when it's necessary. <laughs> yeah. He he maybe not be like a... A classic. He's not fully devoid of emotion. And some might say that that's very emotional. That you, get, just, you get amped up. <laughs> that's <kill>. true. <laughs> After a few years of successful bootlegging, 21-year-old Ben Siegel was bawling out of control. His wealth re- was reflected in his stylish outfits, which included alligator shoes. Nice. I mean, he was like, look, you're 21. You have a ton of money. Of course, you're going to get alligator shoes. Of course. And you're a gangster in 1920s. I mean, the fashion something. for men in the 20s Ugh. is so, like, when Ugh. it's done right, it's great. It's so good. I mean, they had so many options. Yeah. And they were, they were dressing sharp like yeah and going out out you know like going all out it would you know what i mean like the masculine men were wearing like 
colorful outfits and like hats and shoes, like fancy shoes so and like, many yeah, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Jewelry, like, yeah. Uh, you get a little pocket watch maybe. Uh, I mean, hat. just the cut of those suits is really hot. Like everyone in Boardwalk Empire is so hot. Just because it's like the clothing is hot. Yeah. Uh, it's not hot when they did the imitations of it in the late nineties. Oh, unless like, it was vintage. You mean like the forties? The forties stuff, like, well, yeah. I mean, the twenties is kind of like well, you mean an like, early version of that. Those suits, the, yeah. with the cuts, the certain cuts, right? And the forties stuff. A lot of people were wearing those twenties stuff too during that sort of revival. The people I knew, anyway, they were they were doing the old school gangster. Prohibition look uh, for sure. The men, the men, not the women. Yeah. So, but I agree. In Boardwalk Empire, everyone looks hot. It's just a, it's a great fashion era. Yeah. So he's balling out of control. He's wearing cute outfits and he's spending money like it was going out of style. And the money kept rolling in, so it didn't matter. He wasn't going to go back to how he lived as a child, and he sure as hell wasn't going to be like his dad, still working in a pants factory. He's like, I'm buying the pants. You're making them. My pants cost $300. You earned that in five years. Right. <laughs> he wasn't going to do it. Siegel also enjoyed the New York nightlife, frequenting many of the hottest speakeasies that prior to Prohibition barred Jews from entering. But uh-uh. now that the Jews were providing the booze, they're like, well, come on in. Yeah. Mazel tov. <laughs> Ma- yeah, they were like, mazel tov. They're toasting. Yeah. Bring on the Manischewitz. Uh, now they're welcome in these speakeasies as long as they're, you know, the, the and they're scary too. The gangsters are scary, so Look. they're letting them in. Yeah. On top of these gangsters providing society with liquor, they were also mysterious and glamorous. And it probably, like you said, added a lot to the cachet oh, totally. of whatever establishment they were frequenting. By the late 1920s, Siegel and Lansky were responsible for transporting most of the liquor into the States out of any other bootleggers. Well, and that's because they cut everyone else out or killed them for trying. (laughs) Right? Like, I mean... Yeah. um, It wasn't like they had the best prices or something. Right. Now, for all of the years that he had spent committing crime, the first time Siegel would get into any real trouble with the law was in 1926 when he was 20 years old. He was arrested for rape. (gasps) This would be the first and last time he faced a sex crime charge. The alleged victim withdrew her charges, but it's suspected that she probably did so under some kind of threat. I mean, I don't don't doubt that. I don't doubt that either. I tried to look up like some more information on this. Right. Like what was this like someone he went out with or it was someone he knew. It was a girl he had known from like the neighborhood back when they were kids. And uh, like, it sounded like she said something to him that pissed him off. And look, this guy, I don't know what it could, it could have been nothing because he had a temper. He had a short fuse. So she, she's saying she angered him and he raped her. Yes. Damn. But I I couldn't find anything in the papers about, there was nothing in the papers about his arrest. This is just stories. Uh, Siegel was arrested again two years later in Philadelphia for carrying a concealed weapon. He skipped out on his bail and he bounced back to New York. He's like, eh, who cares? Yeah. And nothing came of it. Later that year, Arnold Rothstein was murdered (gasps) over what's believed to have been a gambling debt. 
he was still alive when he was found shot in his suite at the Park Central Hotel. He never told anyone who did it. Also, we will be doing an episode on Arnold Rothstein. I think his story is so interesting. Yes, and, and he's I, also a big character in Boardwalk. And I want to talk about the 1919 World Series so bad. Yeah, so we'll, we'll, we'll do, have another big month. We'll have a big month of that. Along with their bootlegging, Lansky and Siegel took jobs as enforcers for other gangsters to protect their rackets. Siegel acted as an enforcer for Lepka and Gara, who had a protection racket for both the union workers and the owners of the companies in the garment industry. So these guys were, <laughs> they were working for, like, they would do, uh, they would help the owners with, like, strike breaking, like they'd help them break the strikes. But then they would also act as enforcers for the union members and literally break the owner's legs right. as revenge. So they were double dipping. Yes. Like, and at some point, the mob really becomes union focused. Yes. So Lepka and Gara, they owned the garment in- industry. That's where they worked. They also had a stolen fur racket and... They noticed that they were short of some furs. They suspected that one of their lower-ranking gang members, a guy named John Barrett, was responsible for stealing some of these furs. <gasps> Barrett was also bitter that Siegel and Lansky were making more money from the jobs than he was. They got alligator shoes. I got cow ones. I can't, I, I can't take a fur back to my mom? <laughs> Come on, give me one fur. In January of 1928, Siegel and Lansky decided that they were going to take Barrett for a ride to get to the bottom of this. To the Pine Barrens. (laughs) Yeah, basically. Riding with them on this late night drive was the Orthodox Jewish hitman Red Levine. He made an exception on this night to commit murder, even though it was the Sabbath. (laughs) He usually Red Levine. Red Levine was very religious. He had a code. He had a code. No electricity or murder on the Sabbath. (laughs) It's he. He really tried to straddle the line between good Jewish boy and gangster murderer hitman. I can picture like the gangsters being like, "Ugh, Red, no, don't call him. It's fucking Saturday." He's out. He's out of commission. The phone's not till even the fucking on. sundown. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something's got to be taken care of right away. And this night, if he had to make an exception, if it was really important, he would wear his yarmulke <laughs> and the fucking. <laughs> he would kiss his mezuzah yeah. before he left. Like he would, you know. Okay. Like, why tonight? Why? Why? <laughs> he would ask, "Why is tonight different from yeah. other nights?" Because I'm killing on the Sabbath when normally I don't. When normally I don't. But he made an exception for this fucker, John Barrett. Look, he took furs. He took furs. <laughs> God would understand. <laughs> <laughs> so they're traveling with him in their car through a remote area, and Barrett knows he's about to be offed. He's like, "We're. I see we're headed to Pine Barrens. But he probably was confused because he's like, why is Red Levine here? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Like, what must you be thinking right, at like, that moment? But it's minute. like, it's fri- Like, wouldn't you start using that against his, him? His mind was probably like racing. He's probably like, well, bargaining. He's like yeah. in, in denial. Yeah. Maybe we're just going for a malt. <laughs> we're going to service. <laughs> Maybe we're going to a service. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they're in the car and 
Barrett makes a split decision and he jumps from the car and just starts running. You gotta. <laughs> into the night and he's zigzagging. The guys in the car start firing at oh. him and he's literally zigzagging trying to get away from these bullets. But one of the bullets hit him in the back of the head. Uh. And he survived. Whoa. I don't know how... That is always blows my mind when you hear stories. No pun intended. <laughs> Someone shoots them, gets shot in the head or in the face, and they survive. Because that like, happens sometimes. Uh, it, yeah. I mean, because it just... I mean, that happened to Mary Jo Buttafuoco. Oh, well, we did a whole episode Yeah, like, it's like, if it's just at the right angle, do you know what I mean? Right. Like, you don't hit the brain. He's in this remote area. Somehow, John Barrett manages to get to a hospital on the Lower East Side. I don't know how this happened, but he did it. Now, the papers reported the attempted murder, saying that Barrett believed the man who shot him was Meyer Lansky. Siegel thought the whole thing was really funny. Yeah. Like, oh, it was this target practice. Yeah. Zigzaggy, and we're shooting at him, and then he gets away, like, ha, ha, ha. Yeah. Yeah. it's like a Bugs Bunny card, too. <laughs> yeah, he thought it was fucking funny. So Siegel's like, oh, we'll get him. So he sent a poisoned chicken up to his hospital room that day. The next- like a poisoned roast chicken? Yeah. Oh, my God. Like he sent a poisoned roast chicken. And did the guy eat it? <laughs> Barrett actually took the chicken and threw it out the hospital window. Okay, Hopefully good. Hopefully it didn't hit someone. Yeah. That would have been that would have been the the cherry on the Sunday <laughs> if someone did die. From yeah, it's just a comedy chicken. of errors. Yeah, Siegel was kind of a clown. He was actually known to huck water balloons at cops from the tops of buildings. That's cute. I, I think that's a cute move. Yeah, and he's like what fifteen? <laughs> yeah, he's like he. Well, at this point, he's like twenty three or something. But he's got the maturity of a fifteen. He's never grown up. You know, at heart. No. I mean, he's doing a lot of big boy stuff, but he still has a childlike soul. He's still that little uh, Benjamin Hyman <laughs> Siegel. Benjamin Hyman Siegel. <laughs> ben Siegel was also known for being a ladies' man. Oh, yeah. But he settled down in January of 1929 when he married a nice Jewish girl from the Lower East Side named Esta Krakauer. According to Esta's granddaughter, Wendy, Esta was, quote, not a looker. Wow. That's mean to say about your grandma. I don't honestly think I've ever heard someone say that about their grandma. (laughs) (laughs) I looked at pictures of her. She's fine. I guess maybe they thought Ben would be with someone hotter. Maybe maybe. she's just average or I have no idea. Or maybe she didn't have style. I have no idea. The granddaughter was like she was tall and gangly with bright red hair and she had a weird nose. Jesus. Like, that's me. It's your grandma. Yeah, what'd she do to you? Right. She molested me. <laughs> okay, that's no, why that's, you hate her. That's no, no, no. Um, Yeah, that's really weird. Was she, like, a mean grandma? I, I don't think so. Uh, I feel I, like we're missing some of the story here. Like, she was maybe the least favorite granddaughter I or think something. this granddaughter is just rude. She is a jealous bitch. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Meyer Lansky also got married a few months later to a girl from the neighborhood named Anna Citron. Lansky and Siegel were both the best men at each other's weddings. They also both had very traditional Jewish ceremonies with a rabbi, though at the time that was as far as their traditional Jewish values went. Did they break the glass? I'm sure they did. Yeah. I mean, but that was like, they're like, all right, we're getting married. I think that that's typical too of mobsters. 
like they settle down with this neighborhood girl that they never have a good relationship with really. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, this is all based on movies. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that sounds like Goodfellas. But it's like, there's a lot of that though. Like they marry these neighborhood girls and then they always cheat on them with the glamour girls. Right. So uh, I wonder what the deal is. And believe me, just because Ben Siegel's only like, you know, 25, he's still going to do a lot of fucking. Oh yeah. And we'll get into that in part two. Yeah. Please. We've said I, that. I doubt that he's stopped fucking he's, at this point. No. <laughs> Both of their wives knew that their husbands were in the bootlegging business, but they were tight-lipped, telling anyone who asked that their husbands ran an auto garage together. Mm. Lansky did a combination honeymoon-slash-gangster convention in Atlantic City in May of that year. So he's like, oh, we'll do our honeymoon, but I'm also going to meet the boys. Yeah. So At the gangster convention. The, it was gangster con. In I'd Atlantic. go to that. Oh, fuck yeah. So the girls... They hung out together in Atlantic City and like, I don't know, tanned or something. And I mean, Atlantic City was nice back then. Back then it was yeah. like really, that's, I want to go to Atlantic City in the 20s so bad. It looks so nice. I remember the first time I went to Atlantic City, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> so I thought this idea of what it was based on movies and yeah. things I'd seen. And it was like very dilapidated like by then. Isn't beaches Atlantic yes. City? Oh yeah, I loved beaches. Come on. <laughs> it looked like the best place in town. I know. So they go to this gangster con and the other gangsters who were there included Lucky Luciano, Frank Costello, Longies Willman, and Vito Genovese. The guys were discussing their next moves for when Prohibition would end. Because they were like, it's going to end soon. What are we going to do? What are we going to do after that? This conference was also the inception of their plan to form what would be known as the Syndicate, which was a national collection of crime families working together. The Syndicate would be made up of mostly Jewish and Italian crime families, but also included Irish and black crime families as well. By 1930, Italian crime bosses Joe Mazzaria and Salvatore Maranzano were at war with each other. Lucky Luciano, who worked for Mazzaria, got a tip from Joe Adonis that Mazzaria, his own boss, wanted him dead. <gasps> he also wanted Lansky and Siegel dead. After getting wind of this news, Luciano decided to switch teams and conspire with rival crime boss Maranzano to do away with Mazzaria. The plan was for Luciano to take Mazzaria out to lunch at a restaurant in Coney Island and assassinate him there. On April 15, 1931, Luciano sat across from Mazzaria at this restaurant while his very large boss shoved spaghetti into his mouth. Luciano got up and went to the bathroom, and when he was in the bathroom, a car pulled up outside the restaurant and a group of gunmen began firing into the restaurant, killing Mazzaria. <sighs> It's believed by that's some- a spicy meatball. It's believed by some historians that Siegel was among the gunmen, but some debate that. Historians also debate how much spaghetti Mazaria actually ate that day. Oh. That was debated. Like, some people like, he ate a big plate of spaghetti. And they're like, no, the autopsy said he only ate a moderate portion of spaghetti. That's my kind of debate. Me too. How much I spaghetti? just picture him like, one more. Yeah, one. And, and Luciano's disgusted. Yeah, he's like, so gross. He's like, I'm going to the bathroom. 
Maranzano was quickly establishing himself as the top dog in the underworld. He spent the next several months following Mazaria's death restructuring the five families. One thing that he didn't like was the fact that Luciano was working with Jews. <gasps> Maranzano saw Luciano as among the new, new school of gangsters, whereas Maranzano was still old-school Sicilian, and his organizations would be run as such. He didn't want any of this new, yeah. modern gangsterdom. Luciano knew his days were numbered if he didn't act. If Luciano was a threat, so were Lansky and Siegel. So the three guys planned to do away with Maranzano. They would have to breach Maranzano's heavily guarded Park Avenue office. Siegel and Lansky hired a group of four Jewish hitmen to go to the office disguised as government officials. Among those hitmen, Red Levine. <laughs> Good old Red Levine was there. Not the Sabbath. So he was like, free he's like, and clear. I'll do whatever oh. you want. Yeah. Oh, it's Tuesday? Let's do this. The hitmen flashed badges and ordered the bodyguards inside the office to stand against the wall. Red Levine then stabbed Maranzano six times. Damn. The other hitmen also shot Maranzano several times. I guess just to make sure he was... <laughs> make sure. It's like, look, it's like the horror movies where they come back up. <laughs> yeah, you they, gotta they make sure come back. You have to if you stab them, you gotta also shoot them. You gotta do a headshot. Yeah, gotta. He was definitely dead. Yeah. Sorry, that was just in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I already agree. <laughs> you know, to convince me. I think Red Levine did it. <laughs> I think so. I think he did the job first. Allegedly, Ben Siegel was waiting in a getaway car outside after the hitmen fled the scene. The death of Mazaria and Maranzano is what officially established the syndicate. The Jews, Italians, and Irish could work together and profit from whatever rackets they wanted to. This was the beginning of a new age of gangsterdom. I mean, if it wasn't for the crime aspect, it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> <laughs> they all came together to work together. The Jews, the Italians, <laughs> some of the Irish, maybe. Some black crime families. Yeah. It was it's, like a mul- it's a Benetton act. <laughs> it was a melting pot of gangsters at this time. I mean, these are like the millennials of their day. I like, get- we want to work with everybody. <laughs> okay, boomer. <laughs> Yeah, that's what they said when they stabbed Maranzano. Okay, boomer. That was the first known incident of that being said. Right. Um, I think when whenever a mob mobster want to kill the leader to take over, it's so stressful for me. Mm. I could never participate in something no. like that because it's like everything has to go perfectly right. Because if it and then what if someone's pissed? That you did it behind their back, and then you have some other people who hate you. This is like stressful. mob life is stressful. I can't. I also don't like that you can never leave, right? Because I'd probably be like, I need to leave. <laughs> I'm too stressed to handle this. Like, right? It's so I could never topple. I might a gangster. be able to be a mole. Yes, but I don't want to know anything. I don't want to know anything. <laughs> I just want to wear the furs. I'm not hiding any guns in, for you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like I just want to eat spaghetti and wear fur. And don't get me killed when you get hit. Right. <laughs> That's right. your wife's job. Don't don't let me be um yeah, don't I don't want to collateral I'm not collateral damage cuz right. I'm sitting there with you eating spaghetti. I'm just a girl who's eating spaghetti. Right, and looking hot. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Waxy Gordon. Oh. Real name, Irving Wexler. He had been a prominent bootlegger for years. 
He had also worked for Arnold Rothstein, as we mentioned earlier. But by the early 30s, he was beefing with Ben Siegel and Meyer Lansky. At one point, Siegel and Lansky even ambushed one of his bootlegging trucks. He's like, you guys. Yeah. Why I ought to. I'll never forget. (laughs) (laughs) To make matters worse... Lansky's brother tipped off the U.S. attorney Thomas Dewey to Waxy Gordon's tax evasion, (gasps) which led Waxy to be indicted and face jail time. He's steaming mad. He's pissed. His dicky is rolled all the way up, (laughs) and he's got smoke out of his ears. Fire engine red. He's ready to blow. In November of 1932, Siegel was in his armored car driving with his two bodyguards uptown to his headquarters. Another car pulled up alongside him and started firing bullets into the car. Now, Siegel wasn't injured. Only one person in his car was injured. One of his bodyguards got shot in the butt. (laughs) Sorry. He'll never live that down. You can walk that off. But you can't live it down. No, he'll be made fun of. All the guys in the gang. Old Buttshot. That's how he got the name (laughs) Buttshot, McGee. You okay? You okay? okay? Sitting down there? Tony Buttshot... Get a bullet up your ass. <laughs> uh, but Siegel was furious, realizing this was the doing of Waxy right. Gordon. He's like, this, this is a war now between me and Waxy, between us and Waxy Gordon. So Siegel arranged a meeting at his headquarters on Grand Street with several of his men. While they were meeting, one of Waxy's guys was up on the roof. And he lowered a bomb tied to a string down the chimney. <laughs> Sorry. Why is everything like from a fucking Wiley e. Coyote cartoon? <laughs> <laughs> he has a bomb on a string. Like a fishing pole. Like a he's, <laughs> he's reeling it down. <laughs> While they're having this meeting. The problem was this chimney did not go straight down. Oh no. The chimney like made a bend at some point. Right. It 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 didn't it wasn't a straight shot yeah. down. So, Other than that, it's a great place. <laughs> so the bomb can only go so far. Right. It was detonated and it did blow a huge hole into the surrounding like walls. Of course. And exploded a bunch of shit. At the guys, it actually, see, Ben Siegel got hit with a brick in the head. Ow. So that fractured his skull. He had to go to the hospital. He was unconscious. But, you know, they weren't, no, no one was killed in right. that instance. So Siegel concluded that the man responsible for dropping the bomb was Tony Fabrazzo. He was one of Waxy's... Tony Fabrazzo. No. <laughs> Tony Fabrazzo also has been... Uh, his name is... I've seen his name spelled Fabrazzo, but I've also seen it spelled Fabrizio. Ooh. So... I, I think Fabrazzo sounds funny when you're mad. Tony Fabrazzo. Like, if you had to go Fabrizio. It's a great name. It's yeah, a great either name. way, we like it. So... Tony Fabrazzo, he's like, that's the guy who fucking did it. Yeah. He's one of Waxy Gordon's guys, and he per- and I know that guy doesn't like me. Yeah. Uh, Fabrazzo had a good reason for not liking Bugsy Siegel, because in August, Siegel was apparently responsible for murdering his brother, Andrew Fabrazzo. Oh. Andrew Fabrazzo was murdered a few months prior in August. He was found in a rural area of New Jersey, stuffed inside of a sack, and his body was riddled with wounds made from an ice pick. 
Ooh. That's a mob hit. That sounds like Red Levine's work. <laughs> you know what? It does sound like Red Levine's work. Yeah, I don't think he likes to stab. That's not Ben Siegel's work. Mm-mm. That's Ben's Re- Tommy Gun. He's Tommy Gun. Yeah. So his other brother, Lewis, was killed five years prior on the Lower East Side. So he's like Siegel's responsible for both my brother's murders. I'm the last Fabrazzo. He's the last Fabrazzo <laughs> in the group. Siegel is in the hospital recovering from the fractured skull for the next few days, but on like the third night that he's in the hospital, he got up out of his hospital bed, put on a suit, and then he stuffed the bed with pillows to make it make it look like like an old like a body. Yeah, make a little Oh, I'm very familiar I, with this trick. <laughs> I've done that. I did that in my youth. To totally. sneak out of the house. Totally. Or you put a doll's head with the hair <laughs> hanging out. <laughs> You get a doll. You get your American girl doll who has the same color wrap hair as you. Wrap that hair up. You wrap the hair up and you have it hanging out of the Why bed. Why is Rachel sleeping with two braids pulled into little buns? Loops. <laughs> the loops. Yes, I did have the Kirsten doll. Uh, yeah. So he sneaks out of the hospital. He got into a car that was waiting for him outside and he traveled with three other gunmen to Brooklyn, which is where Tony Fabrazzo's dad lived and Tony Fabrazzo had been hiding out at his dad's house for a few months. Siegel and the gunman knocked on the door pretending to be policemen. The dad opened the door and called his son to come down. According to the Times Union newspaper, quote, the Fabrizio family had just finished dinner when the slayers knocked loudly at the door. As they entered the apartment, one of the intruders drew a gun and ordered all into the room to throw up their hands. The family included his parents, a younger brother and sister, and a cousin. Tony Fabrazzo was then ushered by the gunman into another room where he was shot three times. Following the murder, Siegel returned to his hospital room, went back to bed, went night-night. I got something to do. (laughs) I got something to do. When police arrived at the scene of the murder, they discovered that uh, there was a manuscript that had was just had just started to be written like the early beginnings of a manuscript that Tony had been working on this manuscript that he was working on was an expose detailing all the players in the syndicate oh. and he was going to expose the whole fucking operation wow and name names he just had just started it though and here's where i'm going to tell you everything hold on the door there's a knock at the that's literally what happened. That's, oh. what, that's what happened. Here's an excerpt that was printed in the newspaper uh, from like the beginning of this manuscript. It said, Some time ago, a prominent brewer said the brewers were getting up a fund of $5 million so that they could control the breweries. But do you know that the underworld has raised a fund of $27 million to keep control? I know certain things, dot, dot, dot. Oh my gosh. I don't think he's a great writer. No. I know certain things. But that's that's how the book starts. Yeah. He's going to tell you what the things he knows. I'd start it with just I know certain things. That would get me in. I don't know what he's talking about with the brewers. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that draws you into the book. Yeah, cuz I'm like, okay, what do you know? <laughs> tell us what you know. I mean, it's too late to give him these notes. No. The following year, Siegel moved to the affluent area of Scarsdale, New York. Ooh. Scarsdale Diet Doctor. 
One of my favorite episodes we've ever done. Very upscale. If you haven't listened to that episode, it's a good one. (laughs) So Siegel moves to Scarsdale with his family, which at this time included his two young daughters, Millicent and Barbara. They were one of the few Jewish families in the area. They were allowed to move there because they were wealthy, so they're like, who cares if you're Jewish? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Fine. But they were not allowed to be members of the Scarsdale Golf club. Did that bug him? No, but that's like a thing. Like Jews weren't allowed to play golf or something. Ugh. Like, I mean, it's always the golf clubs. Like you can't. Country have Jew- clubs are so. <laughs> they put the cunt in country. Club. <laughs> <laughs> but I swear to God, that was like a rule till like very. Recently. I mean, that's just very typical of any minority at yeah. country clubs. They don't want them in, right? Uh, but yeah. So even though he was Bugsy Siegel, he still couldn't go to their fucking golf club. Who who wants to go? Those the Scarsdale Golf Club. <laughs> you know that food is bad there too. Totally, it's like a bay shrimp. It's salad. like here's a gelatin salad. Yeah, with some fucking poached tomatoes in it. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> no salt. Absolutely no seasoning. But. With Prohibition ending and the police sniffing around Siegel for the murder of Fabrazzo, surprise, his hospital alibi didn't exactly feel rock solid to the police. He was like, I was there all night. Did you check the pillows? (laughs) Bugsy Siegel was itching to relocate away from New York. He's like, "Ah, It's getting hot here. It's getting a little hot here. I need to change the scenery. Like... There's not going to be bootlegging here anymore. I need a way to make more money and like get into yeah, some new Yeah, what's my shit. new racket? Right. There was money to be made elsewhere, specifically with gambling. So why not head out west? And what better place to reinvent yourself than Los Angeles? It's a classic place to reinvent yourself. We will talk about that next week. Bugsy's journey to L.A., It's a great story. Okay, I'm excited. I hope so. You hope that I'm excited? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I just said I was. (laughs) I'm excited to get into his L.A. adventures. I I love that movie, Bugsy, uh, the Warren Beatty movie. It's a good one. He's a great cast, like that casting choice. Well, and that's mostly L.A., Yes. Vegas. Uh, so it's like what would be next next week's episode? Yeah, right. I love that movie. I don't know if this is a three parter or not. I told Desi I'm going to try my darndest to squeeze it into one episode for next week. It's a lot though, but so it is it's a possible. lot. I mean, we just, and this is it's juicy. So. It's a very juicy story. Sorry. I I would do what you need to do. I'm really sorry if any weird noise happened. Melon was has been uh, marching all over our table. He's our engineer. <laughs> We can't do anything about it. He owns this house. Like, he just lets me live here. Yeah. I mean... Sorry. You gotta love it or lump it. He barely lets us do a podcast. He he deigns to let us do it yeah. sometimes. Like, he gets furious when we record. No, it's fine. We, we work around I it. I just want everyone to know that he is the most spoiled cat in the entire world. Like, I spoil him so much, and he, this is the thanks I get. No, he's awful. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> No, he's actually really he's actually really sweet. No, he's sweet. But he's he's also he's a he's a personality. He just has a big personality. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're gonna record our after show. Yeah. For Patreon. For Patreon. And we'll post pictures on Instagram. We have lots of great pictures. Bye. Okay, bye. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.